When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Well, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. So when Frankie Lee needed money one day, Judas quickly pulled out a roll of tens and placed them on a footstool just above the plotted plane, saying, take your pick, Frankie boy. My loss will be your gain. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest from 1967's John Wesley Harding, all the way from Ethiopia, is fellow Bobcat, Sam Sherman. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's a great honor to be on the show. Well, thank you for being here. I mean, I, I, I hate to sound like an old person, but I am an old person at this point. And I am sometimes still amazed at technology that I can be talking to somebody all the way in Ethiopia and A, that we can do it at all and B, that it sounds so crystal clear because as I just told you off air, I've talked to people one state away where the connection was terrible. And yet I'm talking to the other side of the world. And uh, this just sounds great. So this is just amazing. And so thank you for being here. No problem at all. Yeah, as I say, thank you so much. Uh, and glad it's holding up for now. The internet might cut off for a few minutes at some point, but uh, let's see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, okay, I mean, we're going to talk about this song, obviously. There's a, there's a lot to say about it. It's a confusing song, uh, as, are, as a lot of Dylan songs are. But, I mean, Sam, I got to ask you, how did you become a fan of Bob? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I have my dad to thank for that, really. Um, he's always been into Dylan, particularly the... Uh, the mid 60s stuff and when I was younger he took me to see Dylan in London and I think it was probably like lots of people's first experience of seeing Dylan live he came onto stage with that sort of rolling thunder review wide brimmed white hat on and didn't really make eye contact with anyone hmm. don't think he said hello um, and then just sort of proceeded to play a set uh, none of which I recognized at the time uh, and then before I knew it, he'd sort of left and I'm not sure he said goodbye either. <laughs> and uh, so I was just left confused and utterly taken aback. I had no idea what I'd just seen, um, but also completely mesmerized, uh, completely hooked and, uh, and wanted to know more. So um, so started to explore the back catalogue again, like lots of people probably exploring Dylan initially from there found my way to blood on the tracks and, uh, yeah. uh, and the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> That's so, I mean, did you, had your dad, you said your, you know, your dad introduced you to what was he, I guess, I mean, he was sort of like original recipe Dylan fan because of his age. Right. And we would have, Dylan would have been just coming out when he was uh, coming up. So did, was he like a big fan or did he discover him kind of later in life? Yeah, he, I think he discovered him slightly later. I mean, he was into the, the sort of blonde and blonde period. He was kind of into um, uh, some of the slow train coming period as well. And then also into Beatles, into Joan Baez. And so he introduced me to all of that. But I think it was Dylan in particular. I wasn't sure at the time what it was that hooked me, but something about Dylan got me. And uh, yeah, we went from there. And I think we've both enjoyed sort of listening to Dylan together since that point. Oh, that's nice. So I, I do need to ask you about your profession because I find it uh, sort of fascinating is that you are, well, why don't you explain what you are? Well, I, don't, I don't want to get it wrong. Why don't you explain to everybody exactly what you do? Sure, no problem. No problem. Um, so I'm, I'm a British diplomat. I've been posted to, uh, to Addis, as you said, uh, where I'm the head of political section in our embassy. 
uh, and I've been here for, for just over a year now. I've got two more to go. Uh, totally fascinating country. It's uh, Africa's second largest country, 110 million people, uh, often known as the sort of cradle of mankind. And, and, and the country, the state, is uh, 3,000 years old. Um, currently going uh, through a difficult period, as I'm sure you've seen in the news, yeah. a, a difficult transition. But uh, yeah, a really fascinating place to be. And part of the reason I ask that, again, because I'm just fascinated, it sounds like an amazing line of work, but uh, do you take, I mean, I guess you have your iPhone with you or something. Do you listen to Bob while you're there? Is it, is it, because, you know, other people have talked about how uh, when they've traveled great, you know, far distances, it's like they sort of returning home to listen to things they knew when they were at home. And or do you find yourself listening to a, a lot of music? Do you have, do you even have time for such a thing? And if you do, is there a particular sort of Dylan songs that you're listening to while you're on your off times? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I have a record player and some, some vinyls and I've taken a, a bunch of Dylan records out with me and I've got a tradition of uh, uh, listening on a Sunday morning to one of those. And then also when friends come around, making sure I sort of drive them crazy with Dylan and, and also a bit of Jen Byers and other artists like that. Um, and there's also, there's a really nice tradition of, of Ethiopian jazz here. Um, and so there's a sort of strange, the only, the only strange link I found to Dylan is an artist called Gitachu Kassa, who um, uh, is a, a 70s Ethiopian uh, singer. And uh, in, in 2008, Dylan created a sort of compilation called Artist Choice. And one of the songs he put on there was uh, Gitachu Kassa's Tezeta, which is a, a really beautiful jazz piece. Um, and... Uh, there's a fantastic bit in the liner notes where Dylan says, I thought it was some kind of Cajun record played backwards. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's lovely to listen to. And then, and then Dylan goes on to say, I've got it in front of me, actually. There's something great about hearing music that's so obviously passionate and so obviously good and not being able to understand the words. I like to imagine this is what my records might sound like to someone in a country that doesn't speak English. And then the only other link to, to Ethiopia I found for Dylan is in... Uh, in Precious Angel from Slow Train Coming, where he says, on the way out of Egypt through Ethiopia to the judgment hall of Christ. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure the geography is precisely correct, but it's, it's a nice <laughs> <laughs> I'm I was trying to find if Dylan has ever played Africa at all. Uh, and I've, really, I've not been able to sort of ferret that out. Now, I saw one article that mentions someone wrote in this article. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's in the Music Times from 2015. And it says, Bob Dylan has not played a gig in Africa during the last 27 years. Well, that's the, the, the phraseology of that is a little strange. It seems to suggest that he has played Africa at some point, just not in the last 27 years. So I'm not exactly, you know, I'm like, okay, so 27 years would be what? Like 1995, roughly? Mm, so did he mm. play Africa? And I, I, I'm not able to find it. So if anyone's listening to this knows that he's played, ever played a gig in Africa, that would be fascinating because, I mean, there aren't that many corners of the world he has not played at yet. No, exactly, exactly. And you would have thought, given the number of tours he's done, the number of shows he does every year, Surely he's passed through Africa at some point. Yeah, Egypt, you would think. I'd some point. Yeah, like South Africa, so, yeah. maybe Nigeria. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. Uh, well, that's I said. That's that's just fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating line of work, and I feel like I could talk to you about that just as a whole separate show. But we're here to talk about the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest from John Wesley Harding, as I said. So even among Dylan songs, which are you know, notice, you know, notably inscrutable, I find Frankie Lee and Judas Priest to be 
extra inscrutable, if that's uh, the right way to phrase it. Why did you want to talk? <laughs> why did you want to talk about this one? No, I completely agree. A, a, a pretty nuts, absurd song. Um, <laughs> I, I guess a few reasons. What the reasons? One is um, that, that you've covered a lot of songs, Rob, and uh, there aren't that many <laughs> left to choose from. So I had to search through the back catalogue a bit. Oh, well, wait think, a minute. Hold something... on, Sam. We've got at least, <laughs> to my count, we've got at least around 300 songs left to do. I mean, come on. Very true. And probably more in the future. I mean, he's still pumping them out. Right, exactly. That, and that's assuming he'll never make another album, which, of course, we hope is not the case. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. I got more, the, the show's got some more episodes left. <laughs> um, the, the, the amazing thing about, I, th- I think, about this song is that it's both completely um, classic, quintessential Dylan. It's sort of layered and a bit religious and moralistic and, and as you say, slightly absurd. But then it's also, it's not really Dylan at all. It's, it's this strange fronted ballad. There's no chorus, there's no bridge. Uh, it's totally stripped back. It's this like a shaggy dog tail. And as far as I'm aware of those sort of four, 500 Dylan songs that you mentioned, it's the only one with a, an explicit moral, a, a moral that Dylan gives you. Actually, literally says morals. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's both sort of classically Dylan and then also not really Dylan at all, this sort of reinvented, reimagined Dylan. And also it's just a, it's a beautiful song. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a lovely sort of campfire song almost. Do you remember the first time you heard uh, the record, John Wesley Harding? Was it the song that popped to you or, or what was your first reaction to hearing that record? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the whole record uh, just fits together so nicely and, and it's this sort of story from beginning to end of this sort of almost cycle of redemption and sin and so on. Um, but I think this song in particular, just because it, there's something very bouncy and mesmerizing about it, because there's no chorus, it's, it's plain spoken, it draws you in, you want to sort of understand it and listen again and again until you do. Uh, when, when did you first hear it? Uh, it would have been when I got John Wesley Harding because I mean, obviously, this was not uh, this song was not a you know a hit in any way. It was never released as a single. Uh, it is unique in that it is the only song on the entire record that is not just three verses. Every yes, other song yes. is just basically three. I mean, there's some some slight variations with "I'll Be Your Baby Tonight," which we just talked about a couple episodes ago. Mm. But for the most part, every song on that record is three verses and out. And then you've got yes, this yeah. you've got this song which seems to be saying a lot and then also not saying anything at all. I mean, again, you exactly, mentioned exactly. You've, got, you've got Bob Dylan at, within the space of one verse saying, here's the moral and then nothing is revealed. Nothing so is revealed. <laughs> you've just listened to this whole Shaggy Dog story and you've learned nothing from it because you can't learn anything from it because I didn't intend anything to be found in it. Now, of precisely, course, precisely. that does not stop Dylan fans from finding meaning in it because yeah. of course we're we're that breed you know we have to look and, and find this so the song the second verse of the song continues well frankie lee he sat right down he put his fingers to his chin but with the cold eyes of judas on him his head began to spin would you please not stare at me like that he said it's just my foolish pride but sometimes a man must be alone and this is no place to hide so right off the bat i mean we've got a couple of things that are sort of confounding first of all naming someone judas inherently gives you a feeling of what this person cannot be trusted. Why else would you exactly. name them Judas? So right then and there. So the song opens with these two guys that sound like they're friends. And you've got Frankie Lee saying, I need some money. And Judas being very generous and pulling out the roll of tens. But then, uh, then in that second verse where he, he mentions the cold eyes of Judas on him, would you please not stare at me like that? So all of a sudden, 
these guys are not necessarily friends. There seems to be some sort of power dynamic going on here that Frankie Lee is aware of and not comfortable with. And if there's something that we know that Dylan is incredibly suspicious of is power structures. He doesn't like imbalanced power structures, whether they be in government, in society, in relationships. That is a thing for him. And so immediately with this bouncy, jaunty tune, which sounds, as you say, like a campfire song, it sounds so friendly. All of a sudden, you've got Judas's cold eyes staring at Frankie, which seems to suggest there's a lot more going on here than the tune you know, suggests. Exactly. And I mean, you're right. There's a sort of disconnect between the bounciness and the campfire sense and then also the, the, the very dark moral destruction of, of, of both Frankie and, and Judas. And, and I think you're right. I mean, Judas is interesting because um, Dylan was himself called Judas on stage, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, 18 months or so earlier at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. And, and, and it is a symbol of, uh, of betrayal and temptation. And we have that right off the bat, as you say. Um, and my, my, my interpretation is that it's, it's potentially about Grossman, about um, mm-hmm. Albert Grossman, his manager, and, and by extension, the record company and, and maybe the audience. And Frankie seems like uh, an innocent person at the beginning, and he's led down this path of, of temptation, of vice, of seduction. Uh, as you say, Ju- Judas dupes him by playing this game by very quickly pulling out of roll of tens, maybe too quickly. And then, uh, and then he's got those cold eyes in the, in the second verse, as you say, he doesn't have much emotion. And, uh, and, and Dylan's trying to hide, um, but, but can't get away from that, that, that um, temptation and betrayal. Yeah, and we've all, maybe not all of us, but a lot, I think a lot of us have had that, that person or that, those people in our, in our lives who uh, are willing to do something for you, uh, but uh, out of friendship, but then you pay a price for it they extract exactly. a price other people hopefully you have more people in your in your life that are not like that but we've all had somebody who if they do something for you they will want either something done in return or they have this sort of expectation of well you should feel very lucky that i did this thing for you and then you kind of get like well then why don't I want you to do it for me if <laughs> it's not it's not a kind gesture if it's if there's strings attached to it that's not the point of it um, exactly, and, and it's 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 almost darker. I mean, he he, he ends in Judas's arms. He's, he becomes totally reliant on this person who's who's duped him, who's led him down that path. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Albert Grossman, and and that is my reading of it as well. And then I think, well, good lord, we've got Dear Landlord, which seems to be expressly mm-hmm. about Albert Grossman, and even All Along the Watchtower, which seems yes. to be about the record company. You know, the, the none of you know what it is worth. Uh, yes. And so you're like. God, is Bob writing song after song about dealing with the record company? <laughs> um, but you have to realize this is 1967. You know, this is right after the motorcycle accident, where, as we know, the record company was kind of really beating down on him. Yeah, sort of yeah. Demanding products. So maybe that was on his mind. Yeah, they, I, they were demanding, you know, he just had this big accident, which uh, there are various, various stories around that we can go into. And then the record company basically says, you owe us 14 songs, even though you're, you're recovering. And he's been at this point with Grossman for, for what, 15 years or so. Grossman's taking uh, almost half of, his, half of his profit. So I think he, yeah, he clearly feels that sense of resentment and his, the way that he's uh, quite, quite uh, subtly um, getting his own back at the record companies by singing a series of songs about them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the song goes on, he says, well, Judas, he just winked and said, all right, I'll leave you here, but you better hurry up and choose which of those bills you want before they all disappear. 
I'm going to start my picking right now. Just tell me where you'll be. Join us. Judas pointed down the road and said, eternity. Eternity, said Frankie Lee, with a voice as cold as ice. That's right, said Judas. Eternity. You might call it paradise. I don't call it anything, said Frankie Lee with a smile. All right, said Judas Priest. I'll see you after a while. I, I have to admit, that whole section is just like, I don't know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. And I mean, we know, we know he was starting to become quite religious and obviously lots of this foreshadows that religious phase. But I think this is a, a series of allusions from the Bible and where, whatever else Dylan was reading at the time. It is a bit, it is a bit mad. Yeah, I mean, it could, you know, it, and it, this seems to be um, of a piece, again, with the liner notes from John Wesley Harding, which are equally inscrutable. I've never been able mm. to make heads or tails of those. But they, a lot of the language in, in the characters of John Wesley Harding seem to be people that are speaking to one another and they're kind of talking past each other. They're not really yes. communicating the way, you know, I would say, reg, quote unquote, regular people would. Uh, you know, like that one of the, Frankie Lee seems to be saying something that Judas is not responding to, and that Judas is saying something else that is not connected to what Frankie Lee just talked about. And that seems to be, that seems to be throughout this record and even in the liner notes where it's, it's these people are here and they're obviously symbols for things, but they're not having a, back and forth conversation the way you know again you would expect to have no 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 not at all and i mean in the line alerts i think again that the frank in the line alerts might be the same as frankie lee which might be the same as dylan but you're right those three are having this wild conversation that that doesn't really go anywhere there's also a a strange sense of timelessness they're all sort of jumping around and they're seeing each other a bit too quickly and disappearing and seeing each other again and seeing each other after a while but then just appearing again bursting upon the scene all it all seems a bit a bit absurd. Uh, so they said the song goes on as well. Frankie Lee, he sat back down feeling low and mean, but just then a passing stranger burst upon the scene saying, are you Frankie Lee, the gambler whose father is deceased? Well, if you are, there's a felony call down the road and they say his name is priest. It's all right. So obviously uh, a certain amount of time has passed uh, because, yeah. you know, Judas Priest has been gone long enough for this other person to hear about him. Uh, I do kind of like the, 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 the uh, story construction of just bringing in a third character uh, just they, you know, just, and there's some of the, I, sort of the way Dylan says it. Well, well just then a passing stranger burst upon the scene, just kind of like, all right, we got this third guy coming. Don't worry about it. Don't worry where he came from. Uh, exactly. so, okay. Okay. Fine. The, oh, the, the father, who, who did you take the father to be? Because I mean, we know Dylan's own father, Abe was, was pretty ill at the time, had a heart attack the year before and then died the next year. But, um, I thought that this could be Woody. This could be Woody Guthrie, maybe. That's interesting. I never thought of that. I I always figured he was talking about his father, but then, of course, he realized his father didn't die until a year later. Yeah, whereas, whereas Woody had died what, a, a few months before Dylan uh, started recording this. And around the time, we, I, I guess we don't know when he wrote it, but around the time he wrote it was when Woody, his sort of spiritual or musical father, had just died. That had never occurred to me, and I, that makes a lot of sense. I like that a lot. I mean, yeah, because he said you would imagine that Frankie Lee is Dylan in this scenario, uh, and he's being called the gambler, and the idea that, mm. yeah, this, the, and you, also you're thinking about that, you know, Dylan was getting further and further away from the, the whole Woody Guthrie thing, and then Woody Guthrie passes away, and then Dylan comes back with a record as different from Blonde on Blonde as humanly possible, seemingly returning to a lot of the inspirations that, he got from what he got. So yeah, I like that a lot. That's, I can't believe, I'm a little ashamed that in the 30 years I've been listening to the song, it never occurred to me, but uh, that's, I like, yeah, that's cool. And, and you're totally right. I mean, this is, this is as far from 
the, the, the previous 18 months as possible. He, he has this enormously um, busy period of, of uh, writing and you know, amphetamine-fueled uh, tours and culminating in Blonde on Blonde. And then, as you say, has that, has that motorbike accident, that sudden moment. And, um, and in a way, that almost kills him. But actually, it, it sort of ends up saving him because he, he goes back to Woodstock. He rekindles with, with his father and his mother. He, uh, he has his second child. Um, and then he, in the summer of love, when everyone's sort of putting out as much loud music as possible, Sergeant Pepper's out, Dylan then comes along and puts out a sort of almost tribute to Woody Guthrie. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and Dylan's first live appearance after his motorcycle accident was at the Woody Guthrie tribute concert. Of course, uh, yeah, yeah, did, yeah. Uh, which I owned, I still own on LP. It was not available on CD or uh, like on iTunes for decades. And so I bought it. Wow. I did, that was one of those things that I did not even know existed because this was pre-internet. So I wasn't able to kind of look all the stuff up. And I was at like at a, a used record store. And I was like, oh, the concert for Woody Guthrie, what's that? And then I pull it out. Have you ever heard it? I've never heard it. Who, who, who else did Dylan get along? Uh, the band is there. Uh, you got Arlo Guthrie there. There are, mm. uh, Joan Baez is there. You've got um, a speech in, in between the songs. There is spoken word pieces by the actor Robert Ryan from, wow. <laughs> from the Dirty Dozen and stuff. <laughs> it's amazing. Like You're like, wow, what a collection of people. Uh, and they, they sang three Woody Guthrie songs. It's a really great collection. I'm glad that it's available digitally now. But for many years, I held on to the, the vinyl just because I was like, I can't get this anywhere else. It's not available. <laughs> the format. So that's, that's really interesting. I like that. I, I really like that idea a lot. So they said the song goes on. Uh, oh, yes, he is my friend, said Frankie Lee in Fright. I do recall him very well. In fact, he just left my sight. Yes, that the one said the stranger as quiet as a mouse. Well, my message is he's down the road stranded in a house so all of a sudden this uh stranger is not kind of ran randomly walking by and finding frankie lee it sounds like he's been sent he's a messenger he says well my message is he's down the road well all right he's been given a specific uh set of instructions by either somebody in the house or by judas priest so this guy is not just a random stranger he's not random at all he's actually went out looking for frankie Yes, exactly, exactly. I didn't, I didn't really under, understand why some, some of this, for example, uh, as quiet as a mouse, may, maybe just Dylan making things up or, or enjoying the rhyming at this point. <laughs> I mean, as far as I know about, you know, Bob's life in Woodstock was kind of quiet. Uh, you know, he mm. was like taking the kids to school and taking them to the bus every morning and just kind of being this kind of quiet country guy, uh, again, in a complete contrast to the loud as you said, you know, sort of amphetamine-fueled wire-haired Dylan of 1966. So, I mean, it's an incredible change. And so maybe he liked that sort of persona of like, I'm just a quiet... I mean, I think he even said in an interview, I'm a country boy myself, uh, yes, which is yeah, very, yeah. very antithetical to anything we're sort of thinking of Bob Dylan. But maybe that's, that's the image he wanted to project. I mean, certainly the cover of John Wesley Harding has that kind of feel to it too, where he's with the, those three musicians and then the woodsman from the, from next door it's just kind of this very very you know, relaxed photo it looks like a you know a photo you'd see in a photo album of just oh there's bob and some guys that just happen to be walking by forgetting about the fact that it's bob dylan you know exactly exactly and i mean he looks happy there he looks healthy he if, if you compare him to those images from the the 65 66 tours it's a totally different dylan he looks sort of a hundred years uh different and uh and and, and much younger in his in his sort of 
yeah, style and way of standing. Have you, have you heard these, these rumors about the Beatles' faces in the album? I've heard album that. Album. I'm like, come on. What are, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it myself. I've seen people try to examine it, but, but I, think we're, I, think we're, I think we're pushing it a little. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and, but I think you're right about him going back to Woodstock and retreating. And, and it goes back to that second, uh, that second verse, but sometimes a man must be alone and this is mm. no place to hide. You know, he's, he's going back to Woodstock. He's, he's in the big pink with the band. He's enjoying just riffing with them. He disappears from public view essentially for a year and a half. And uh, I think that, that seems to have done him a lot of good. Absolutely. The, all those pictures you see of him from the 1965, 66, he does look incredibly mm. tired and beleaguered. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you really do. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long after this, only a couple of years later that both, uh, well, you'd have three, you'd have Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin all die. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, yeah. and particularly Hendrix and Joplin, I think died like within like two weeks of each other or something like that. Mm. I mean, ridiculous. And you can imagine in an alternate universe, thankfully that we don't live in that one, that, that Bob Dylan becomes a victim of that where he just burns himself out because he's Completely. just burning on all thrusters. And luckily, uh, the motorcycle accident slash, it was a convenient moment to just, as he said, you know, put the brake, turn the tap off, pump the brakes, and just refresh him. And as you say, as he as he looks on the the cover of the record, he does look happy, he, and he yeah, looks like a yeah, younger yeah. man. Uh, he looks like a much different guy than the guy that was on display just again like a year and a half ago. If 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 you watch him in that that um, in Penny Baker's film, I mean, he 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 looks exactly on that trajectory that you're talking about. I mean heading straight towards something pretty, pretty bad. And I mean, he's only 26 by this point. He's already been through that freewheeling phase, the protest <laughs> phase, the folk rock phase. He's had his accident, as you say. He's, he's going so quickly. And then, uh, yeah, that accident just, just does save him. I mean, and, and, and makes him into this new Dylan that you see on the cover of John Wesley Harding, this younger Dylan, as, as yeah. he put it. I was so much older then, I'm younger than that. Yeah. Now. <laughs> so again, this, this song continues. Well, Frankie Lee, he panicked. He dropped everything and ran until he came into the spot where Judas Priest did stand. What kind of house is this, he said, where I have come to Rome? It's not a house, said Judas Priest. It's not a house, it's a home. Well, Frankie Lee, he trembled. He soon lost all control over everything which he had made while the mission bells did toll. He just stood there staring at that big house as bright as any sun with four and 20 windows and a woman's face in every one. Now, okay, woman's face in, in every window certainly suggests, uh, you know, a house of prostitution. Um, mm. it, this wouldn't be the first time that a musician has referred to uh, their record company as a whorehouse. Uh, I think about the, the supposedly the line in the boxer is uh, the, the, Paul Simon sings the horrors on seventh Avenue is Columbia records. He's referring yes, to them yeah, as that. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, this seems explicitly like, yeah, uh, Judas priest has gone to this house of ill repute and uh, that's where he's spending his time. Now, of course, again, depending on your point of view is a whorehouse necessarily a bad thing. Really? I mean, not, not, re not really. Uh, you know, uh, again, it depends on your, your point of view and the context of how it's being put. But obviously, this is sort of a shorthand for selling your wares in a kind of, you know, sort of grungy sort of way. So you can imagine that that's what, at least on some level, Dylan is referring to in this verse. Exactly. I, I, I totally agree. And also, I mean, that line, and that big house as bright as any sun. I think that that's images of House of the Rising Sun. So, so again, a sort of brothel of some kind. And I think, I think you're right. This is Judas uh, luring, luring 
Frankie or Dylan to, to moral destruction, not just to actual death, but to, to, to moral death in a way. What did you make of uh, With Four and Twenty Windows? I always, again, I, I always look at it, it's just Bob Dylan using sort of particularly like old-timey language. The mm. way they talk about four score and 20 years ago, that kind of thing. Yeah, just a, exactly, a purposely exactly. old-timey way of referring to something. <laughs> or just being uh, sort of strangely specific in his numbers. Bob Dylan's 115th dream, fourth time around. Yeah. doesn't really make sense. He just loves those numbers. Yeah, yeah. I just, I was, and part of it, again, might just be just to get to the rhyme, just to, just to extend the, if you say with 120 windows, with 100, you know, I guess you could yeah. do it that way, but there's something four and 20 windows. Again, yet another Bob Dylan song that seems to take place in an indeterminate time frame. Uh, exactly, is this, is exactly. this the current day? This kind of feels like old timey when there would be horse, you know, people riding horses again. You can never tell what these. Mm. Um, so the, uh, the, the only other potential connection I, I was i was doing a bit of reading about this earlier and someone somewhere online suggested it's it, the english nursery rhyme i don't know if you've heard it but sing a song of sixpence where they say sing a song of sixpence a bag full of rye four and twenty naughty boys baked in a pie so again oh. that sort of image of naughty boys of of uh, temptation of the, the the brothel that he's led to by judas Another potential oh. theory. Okay. I like that. No, I'm not, not familiar with that one. So, okay. That's very interesting. This is well up the stairs. Ren Frankie Lee with a soulful bounding leap and foaming at the mouth. That's kind of bad. He began to make his midnight creep for 16 nights and days. He raved while on the 17th, he burst into the arms of Judas priest, which is where he died of thirst. No one tried to say a thing when they carried him out in jest, except of course for the little neighbor boy who carried him to rest. And he just walked along alone with his guilt so well concealed and muttered underneath his breath, nothing is revealed. So what? <laughs> who, who, is, who is concealing their guilt? Like, and who is they, the neighbor boy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty conspicuous that, that Judas isn't there in the end, that the only person right. there is this, is this neighbor boy who... Who might be? I mean, Dylan was was Grossman's neighbor at the time, so maybe this is this is Dylan post motorbike accident, uh, a, a new Dylan. Um, but the strange thing is, this neighbor boy has guilt. He says, with his guilt so well concealed. So he's another Frankie in a way, but but maybe he's uh, he's sort of concealed his guilt or, or shown his guilt in a different way. Yeah, that that part, I'm just again, I'm totally lost in that. Because why is the little neighbor boy? feeling guilty why is it you know and and just in the way dylan sings nothing is revealed he kind of stretches it out he's like nothing is revealed <laughs> and that to me is like bob is sort of really getting up in your face sort of saying hey you've been listening to this song for the last three or four minutes there's nothing here you've been you're looking yeah, too exactly, hard there's exactly. nothing here everybody but that's the punchline i mean he's 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 you know he's making fun of his record company but he's also uh making fun of his audience and you've just listened to this whole thing. And then he says, punchline, nothing's revealed. You're not going to yeah. get anything. And then the weird thing is he gives you, you three morals in the next, uh, in the next verse. Right. Yeah. Then, then after that, he doubles back on himself <laughs> with ending with, well, the moral of the story, the moral of the song is simply one that should never be where one does not belong. So when you see your neighbor carrying something, help him with his load and don't go mistaking paradise for that home across the road. And, it's hard to know what what he's saying, and of course, it doesn't even matter. In some ways, it's more of a how what's what's how does it mean? What does it mean to you? 
uh, you know, the the moral seems pretty basic. It's like it's a kind of a bromide of like, hell, you know, don't the grass is always greener kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah completely right. Yeah, but you also could imagine that a lot of people probably said that about Bob Dylan, and maybe that filtered back to him of like, oh, this guy's got it easy, you know, and maybe he's like, well, okay, you know, you don't know my life. It might seem easy from the outside, but you don't really know. Uh, but then it also could just be a simple, as you say, like a simple moral of you see someone, you know, he, he spent a lot of the mid 60s really, you know, slashing his way through people and concepts and, and being very judgmental of people. Uh, I mean, you heard about those truth attacks, they would call it and stuff like that, where he was really um, where if you were part of the Dylan circle and then you were sort of made a wrong step, you were thrown out of the inner circle pretty viciously. And as you talked about it, like you can even see some of that and don't look back. And here he's trying to express uh, this feeling of being, you know, being going out of your way to be kind to someone. You see your neighbor carrying something, help him with his load and don't assume that you know what their life is like. And that's true. Of, I mean, that's, it's a, as you said, it, it's trite, but it's trite because it's true, you know, in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're doing that now on social media where people rip into one another with wild abandon. And you don't know what somebody's life is like. Nobody does. Nobody necessarily, you might think people have it easy, but you don't know. And so it's, do you feel like in this final verse that this is all to put on, or do you feel like Bob is sort of means it a little bit? No, I, I, I feel like with the nothing is revealed, the last line of the previous paragraph, that's him having fun. But then he says, actually, there is a serious message to this. And it's, it's an old morality tale, basically. And, and, and he's offering up redemption in the end. There's some kind of moral and parable and something to take from it. And I think this maybe, again, goes back to Woody and the moral clarity. And even though, as you say, these are slightly trite messages, they are actually uh, nice, nice uh, morals to live by i think yeah yeah he might have felt like okay i i I got all ornate and complicated and now i'm just stripping everything down to these simple Mm. and you know i mean he might again he might have been that this is uh reconnecting with the woody guthrie stuff which is uh you would think and again this day and age some things would be obvious to a lot of us but they're not about how to treat one another (laughs) you know i mean maybe we do need to restate these things because it seems like a lot of people aren't hip to that of how to, yeah, how, to yeah. how to treat one another. So okay, there you go. But yeah, and this is this is family Dylan. I mean, you could almost imagine him sitting there singing this to to um, Anna and Jesse, and and in the future his other kids uh, mm-hmm. as a, a, a children's tale of, of of how to treat others in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. You said that this this has got that sort of campfire kind of feel mm. to it. Uh, it, again, it goes on a little long, I would think, <laughs> you know, it's like a yes, little, yeah. uh, you know, for that kind of song. But at the same time, uh, again, he's obviously for a song that is so pointedly not about anything. It's it really seems like he's he's showing his cards and that it is three times the length of all the other songs on this <laughs> on this record. Exactly. Passes the five minute mark. I mean, I've, I've listened to it so many times in, in preparation for coming on over the last few days. And I do, I have to say this morning I was listening to it and I did wonder, is this song actually quite annoying in a way? <laughs> does it, does it, does it maybe start to grate? Um, but no, I think, I think uh, there's, there's something, there's some, there's something kind of magical about it. Now, uh, live wise, it has only been played 20 times in uh since it's uh, recording mm. it was never played live until 1987 
Uh, and wow. then 20 stopped, years later. Yeah. And then he stopped playing it in 2000. He played it a bunch of times when he was with the dead, uh, which again, mm, uh, mm. one of the nicest things about uh, those tours with the dead was that he was seeming willing to excavate songs that had never been touched. And the most famous cover of this song, the only one I could really find is by uh, Garcia and Grisman. Uh, so yes, they covered yeah. it on one of their records and they even, they even have a more kind of mellowy, not unsurprising, uh, you know, sort of mellow. That's their version is almost to me way more like the campfire version. Uh, the way it's, they it's sing. almost. I, I watched it the other day. It's almost a lullaby. I mean, it's just yeah. it's, it's so sweet to watch. And I have to say that the versions by him and the Dead, and and there's also one with uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, amazingly from oh, I think really? the same oh, sort wow. of years, oh, eighty seven or so. Find that one. Okay. Yeah, it's somewhere. It's somewhere on YouTube. But 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 it's also. I mean, watching it, he's happy playing it. He, he it's it's just lovely to watch. Yeah, the uh, I found a cut the the couple on YouTube. I found of Bob performing it. There was one from two thousand. And he sounds mm. like he's having a good time, uh, so. you know. He so. sounds like he's enjoying playing it, and he sings like the whole thing. Which again, it's a it's an amazing uh, ability to re- remember all the words of the song because yeah. it's so yeah. sort of yeah. ornate and complicated. But it's again, it's sort of interesting that for he obviously was finding it fun to play because he played it a lot in two thousand, and then of course he retired it after that. But uh, yeah, I mean, geez, it's a it's a unique one to to play um as far as i've heard uh in terms of bootleg series there are no alternates of this i've not heard any other even when they did the the bootleg series uh the uh, traveling through which featured a bunch of john wesley harding outtakes there was no alternate version of this so i don't know whether this is it this is just that they got it in the first take and bang it was done or there were no other complete takes it would be interesting to hear if there are any are are there any uh, lyrical variations of this story or this was just he got it, what he wanted to say, banged it out. And then it just sort of, it just sits on the record. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it seems that way. Cause he, he sort of disappeared, uh, I think from, from Woodstock for a while, went down to Nashville and very quickly bashed out the, the whole record and then, yep. and then returned. It doesn't seem like he was playing around too much with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and it's also, it's, it doesn't feature much in the way of any sort of other of the, of, of the other musicians. Uh, you know what I mean? No, it's really no. just, there's, there's no uh, Kenny Buttry on drums and stuff like that. And this is just, it's just sort of bobbed or by himself playing this, this little tune. So again, it would be fascinating to hear if there were any other alternate takes of it. But uh, I mean, it, it lives on in that, uh, I, and I never knew this until relatively recently, that the band Judas Priest got their name from this song. <laughs> I didn't know that. I always, I always thought, I always thought that Judas Priest was some sort, of, some sort of like phrase in the culture that Dylan was using, and that maybe that was the same well that Judas Priest the band was drawing from. But no, the which is amazing to think this sort of jaunty, fun little melody inspired the band Judas. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing because I, I, I'd read somewhere that Judas Priest was a, it was a phrase actually that. Um, actors on, on TV or in old films used to use because they were afraid of saying uh, Jesus Christ on, oh, on wow, TV. Oh, wow, I never heard and that. And apparently okay. instead they would say Judas Priest. But I didn't realize that at all. Do, do, are you a fan? Are you a, a heavy metal fan? No, not particularly. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I will admit when I was a kid, I was just too ch- chicken shit to like be like into that kind of music. I'm like, well, that's scary. Because it's like, oh, they're, they're metal studs and you got another thing coming. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to. I'm over here with my Billy Joel records. I'm fine. So. Exactly. <laughs> although, although it's good. It's, I've got to say, it's pretty cool that. Uh, you know, Dylan's mastered so many genres as we talked about folk, country, rock, <laughs> even gospel. 
and then amazing that the one the one genre he never touched heavy metal uh one of the main heavy metal bands is is inspired by him there you go yeah you can actually and you can find a youtube video of uh rob halford talking about meeting bob dylan once you got to meet bob so that was no way yeah it must have been exciting there's there's, did did you ever see their cover of uh, diamonds and rust uh no no i have not that's it's it's pretty nice it's it's sort of mid-70s judas priest but uh it's 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 in a way full circle it's you know dylan inspiring this band as you say and then this band inspiring joan Baez, and then joan Baez singing uh, or the band singing a song by joan Baez about dylan goes right back <laughs> time is a flat circle so uh yeah. so yeah the battle of frankie lee and judas priest it's an interesting little song uh i mean sam is there anything else we want to talk about uh, before we wrap up here um i don't think so i think that's i think that's great all right so why don't uh, you tell people before i ask you the your your exit question uh why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet sure yeah uh, just on twitter my handle sam g sherman uh, and yeah, so if you're interested in an eclectic mix of Dylan and Ethiopian politics, follow me. <laughs> that's, a, that's not a mix you see a lot of. So, okay. Um, so, all right. I, as I've been asking everybody uh, for the last couple of months, uh, what song do you want to hear Bob play when he opens your show? But of course, now we know he's basically been opening with watching the river flow. That's been a big, uh, yes. I have stayed away from listening to anything until I see Bob. I've been looking at the set lists, but I'm not listening to anything. I want to hear these songs especially since we know he's playing the bulk of Ralph and Rowdy Ways live. Mm. Uh, I don't want to hear these arrangements until I'm there in the room. So I'm going to hold off and then I'll have all. Are you going to go and see him? Yes. November 29th. Uh, wow, I'll, be, okay. I'll be seeing him very, 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 this will be my 25th, sixth concert, something like that. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very excited. So I've decided to change the question because it's a little out of date now because we know what he's opening with. Um, so again, like the one I asked from the previous episode, uh, courtesy of the Twitter handle known as the Pomegranate County Irregulars. Uh, they came up with an alternate question, and I'm, I'm taking it, which is if you, Sam, got invited to a Bob tribute concert and you're on first, what song would you like to perform? <laughs> um, wow, good question. Very different to your normal one. You know, I think uh, one of my favorite Dylan songs is To Fall In Love With You. And, and, and the reason it's so lovely is that it's, there's only that one version as far as i'm aware completely unpracticed completely unvarnished very messy it shouldn't really work but but there's something magical about it and i think that's what i would play because it would also be completely unvarnished and, and horrible sounding from me but but i would hope there would, something comes through with it all right that's a great answer i will say i i don't know if i have an answer for the question yet but i will say that when i went to the 30th anniversary tribute concert in 92 mm. and by the time it ended i was amazed that no one after like 40 performers did anything from blood on the tracks not a wow. single blood on the wow. track song is performed at that concert and i was always like Boy, if I'd been there, I would have whipped out a blood on the tracks. But do you think it's in- just such a perfect album? They were scared to, to even touch it? I don't you know. Don't wanna, you don't want to mess know. anything up? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it just seemed amazing to me that, like, God, that's like a many people's list. That's like the masterpiece. And it, no one, yeah, I mean, yeah. again, it says something about the depth of his catalog that you could do a tribute concert and not play anything from Incredible. one of his greatest records. But it just seems amazing <laughs> to me that nobody thought to do Tango Up in Blue yeah, or something. But, yeah. but anyway, all right, that's a great answer. What, so, what, what are you hoping to see uh, apart from Rough and Rowdy Ways in a few weeks? 
Uh, well, I mean, again, I know what he's performing at this point. I really am excited to hear the rough and rowdy way stuff just because yeah, it's yeah. all new that I haven't, I mean, the last time I haven't seen him, I mean, when I saw him, in a, but you know, I've seen him every year in the last couple of years and he was performing stuff from the Sinatra records, which was good. In fact, I liked that material live more than I've liked it on the, on the records, but I haven't heard him trot out new songs since Tempest. So this is really, and the fact that he's doing nine of of 11 songs is amazing. I mean, that really says something about how much he thinks about this record. So Absolutely. Uh, I, I am really, really excited to, to, to go to that and, and see it. And uh, kind of just, it's just going to be really exciting. We're very, very fortunate that I'm sure he's going to hit the road and see other parts of the world, maybe not Ethiopia, but other, <laughs> other parts of the world. Um, but I feel very fortunate that he's coming around on this first swing. He's coming around to my neighborhood. I just feel incredibly yeah, lucky absolutely. to get to do that. So, but anyway, so and Sam, just lucky no. that the, with the, this songwriter who uh, lots of people sort of thought um, had stopped writing is, 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 is still doing so and putting out amazing new tracks. Um, so yeah, just, just very lucky for that. And I'll definitely be lobbying his office for a, a concert in, uh, in Ethiopia. <laughs> if you can use some of your, some of your governmental heft, it would be probably inappropriate, <laughs> but you can try to do it anyway. So, well, Sam, thank you so much for, for coming by. I mean, again, this is just amazing. And I'm getting to talk to somebody as far away from, from, from where I am as in Ethiopia. So thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Rob. A real pleasure to talk. And, uh, yeah, I've listened for a long time to the show. So thanks. Thanks for, uh, yeah, making Bob special to us. Oh, thank you very much. So, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various awards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, George Doherty, and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod and I very much appreciate it. That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Tonight at 8, Hampton invokes the wrath of the defenders of the faith, Judas Priest.